You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. This morning, uh, we are going to be starting the second chapter of the book of Philippians. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, Um, we are continuing to study uh, through Paul's letter uh, to the Philippian church. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. And as you do, uh, let me pray for our time. Father, um, I ask that you would just open up our hearts and minds, um, open up uh, our ears, all of us who are, are gathered here this morning. You know, maybe there are even some who maybe they didn't even plan to be here when they woke up. But in your divine providence, here they are. Um, So for all of us gathered, may we just be open and receptive to what you uh, have to say. Use the truths that we are going to study just as seeds planted in our soul. And use your spirit just to water those seeds to bring new life and to grow us into maturity in Christ. And I just ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Hear from the word of the Lord this morning, Philippians 2, uh, verses 1 through 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, uh, any affection and sympathy, uh, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, uh, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Uh, Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Uh, So I came across uh, kind of an unusual but funny article uh, this last week written by a pastor and writer named Tom Rayner. Uh, On Twitter, he asked churchgoers to share the biggest, strangest fights uh, that they had ever experienced in a church. Uh, And hundreds, if not thousands of people responded to his posts. Uh, So Dr. Rayner compiled uh, the answers that he received, and he published an article listing the top 25 uh, the, the top, you know, his, his favorite, uh, most ridiculous reasons uh, that had caused a church fight. Uh, in one congregation, uh, someone had wrote that there had been a conflict after it was determined that crayon grape juice, rather than regular grape juice, 
uh, had actually accidentally uh, been served for communion. Uh, so apparently it's okay to use grape juice instead of wine, uh, but you just got to make sure that no cranberries accidentally get mixed in there. Uh, that's the, the line in the sand. Uh, there was another church that had an argument uh, on whether or not they should serve uh, deviled eggs at a carrion because uh, the word has devil in it. So some of the members thought that they should change the name of the dish or just not serve it at all. Um, and Dr. Rayner actually even weighed in on that one saying, you know, it should be okay to serve deviled eggs just as long as you serve, you know, something alongside of them like angel food cake or something, you know, to kind of balance it out. Um, similar to that, uh, there was another church that was divided on whether or not they should call uh, a carrion meal a potluck. Because as Christians, uh, we don't believe or rely on luck. We trust in God. So they thought that the word luck should just be removed altogether. Uh, maybe they should call it a pot blessing or something like that. Uh, there was another church that became divided on what they should do with the land that was adjacent to their building. Uh, apparently, half the people in the church wanted to build a children's playground, uh, while the other half of the church wanted to put in a cemetery, uh, which are two polar opposite choices. Uh, but I kind of feel like if your church members are nearly coming to blows with one another— between deciding on whether or not to build a playground or a cemetery, I feel like you might as well just go with the cemetery because it sounds like your church is going to be dead before long anyway. Um, and then one last conflict uh, that I'll share. Uh, Dr. Rayner said that a number of churches wrote in to express the arguments uh, over coffee. Uh, that apparently was one of the, the biggest responses that he got. Uh, it was just a number of churches that wrote in over conflicts that they had had, uh, and even people leaving the church over coffee. Apparently, uh, several churches had members who were up in arms uh, when their church switched coffee brands, uh, going from brands like Folgers to Starbucks. Um, and even one congregation had members actually uh, walk out and leave the church, uh, not because the church changed the brand of coffee, uh, but just because they changed the roast of the coffee. That There was a church that uh, went from having a light roast to a dark roast, and people apparently uh, got so upset that they left which is probably, you know, there's probably a good lesson to learn there. Uh, if you're going to church primarily for the coffee, uh, you're probably going for all of the wrong reasons anyway. Uh, and if coffee is the primary way that you're trying to attract people to your church, uh, well, then don't be surprised if some of those people don't stick around for very long. Uh, but all of those examples uh, are both funny and sad reminders of many of the superficial ways that, that can cause divisions in the body of Christ, uh, which is one of the reasons that Paul wrote to the Philippians, uh, urging them not to be a divided congregation. Uh, so far in the letter, we've seen uh, Paul trying to console the Philippians who were anxious about his imprisonment in Rome. 
Uh, but now we see that he's also writing to address uh, some of the disagreements that were going on in their church. Uh, we don't know specifically uh, what some of these disagreements were about. Uh, hopefully they weren't as superficial uh, as arguments over the kind of coffee that they were serving. Uh, but whatever they were, Paul wants to take the time to urge them to strengthen their bonds with one another uh, and to pursue unity. Because if we have been united to Christ through salvation, well, it should be that union with Christ that forms the very foundation that allows us to be united with one another. If we are one with Christ, then because of that, we can be one with one another as well. So let's work through these verses. And as we do, I just want to highlight three aspects of unity that are shown in this passage. I want you to see the marks of unity. Uh, in other words, I want to show you how Paul describes it. Um, and then I want to show you the means that he says that we can have to achieve this unity. And then lastly, we're going to see a model for unity, meaning how we see it displayed in Christ. So the marks, the means, and the model for unity. Let's first talk about uh, the marks. How do we see it being described by Paul in this text? Uh, look back at verses 1 and 2, uh, and you can see that. This is where Paul says that if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being uh, of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord uh, and of one mind. So Paul is reminding the Philippians of their common salvation. And he's saying that if they have found uh, any encouragement uh, from their relationship with Jesus and any comfort from his love, well, then unity should be a natural response to that. Unity with others should naturally flow from our union with Christ. But, but then Paul says something curious. Before he lists out any specific marks of what that Christian unity should look like, he makes a request to the Philippians. He asks them to complete my joy, which is an interesting statement for Paul to make. Because we've been talking a lot over the last few weeks about Paul's joy. Despite all that was going on in his life, he was still the happiest man in all of Rome. He still experienced an incredible amount of joy in his life because his joy was rooted in Jesus. But, but now he says that his joy isn't quite complete and you might ask yourself, well, what in the world would give you a more complete joy than Jesus? I mean, how on earth could Paul possibly have or know any, any greater joy than he already has, other than you know, maybe being set free from prison? I'm sure that would have also brought him joy. Uh, well, there is one thing that Paul says that could make his joy even better than it already is. And it's not being released from his chains. It's that the Philippians would also find joy, like Paul, through unity. 
in and around the gospel. That's what would make Paul's joy complete. Nothing can be as much of a unifying force as the gospel. I know people who try to rally around all kinds of other things like environmental issues or social causes, some of which are good causes. But there can never be a true sense of unity among those people. I mean, they... They might agree on things like climate change or, you know, the need to address world hunger. But there's always just as many things, if not more, uh, issues that they're going to divide over. I mean, you don't even have to look any further uh, than the sexual revolution that our country is experiencing. Um, if you are familiar at all with the, the agenda of the LGBT movement, uh, it's becoming clearer and clearer every day that the T part of that movement is increasingly at odds with the other letters. Um, I also know many people in our country uh, who hope that maybe we can find our uh, unity just in our, our common uh, nationality. You know, I mean, can't we just take solace that uh, we are all red-blooded Americans uh, and at least that we live in a free country? But with each and every day, it's also becoming clear that even our national identity is something uh, that, that is becoming more and more uh, divisive. We are all divided now more than ever by our political parties. You know, the gap between Republicans and and Democrats is growing uh, wider all the time. And so the pressure to choose which side you're on is, is growing with it. So again, nothing can be as unifying as the gospel. Because it's only the gospel that reveals that we are all equally needy, male or female, rich or poor, black or white, Republican or or Democrat, the gospel shows us that we have all been equally cursed and, and ravaged by our fall into sin. So we are all equally desperate and just as in need of a savior as everyone else. So, so despite whatever other differences and, and disagreements we might have, um, we can still have a, a full, complete joy, like Paul desired, if we would just pursue uh, the kind of unity through the gospel, uh, as the Philippians were urged to do, that we can find great joy if we would simply be of one mind and of the the same love and of one accord. Those are the marks of unity that Paul speaks of. He says that they are to be of one mind. It shouldn't matter what church you walk into on a Sunday morning. Christians everywhere should think along similar minds and should share in the same desires and and purposes, wanting to to make the name of Christ known throughout our communities. We should also be of the same love. We should be of one love. We should all be just as infatuated with Jesus, regardless of denomination, wherever you see Christians gathering, we should see a people who are head over heels for our Savior and who are deeply committed to loving one another and loving our our neighbors as a result of that. We should also be 
of one full accord as well. When you think about a chord, it should strike up the imagery of music in your mind. I know nothing about music, but I do know that it takes a number of notes singing or playing in harmony to strike a chord. And so that should be a picture of our church. Different Christians from vastly different backgrounds, all seeking to harmonize with one another in order that we might sing a single unified melody that declares the good news of Jesus. So those are the marks of Christian unity, being of one mind and one love and of one accord. And those are uh, some pretty lofty goals that Paul sets before us. So the question now becomes, how can we possibly achieve them? And to see that, let's just spend some time looking about you know, what it means or what, what are the means that we have of achieving this kind of unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. Because unity is something that, that we seem to, to desperately be in need of in the 21st century. So let's look at verses 3 and 4. Uh, Paul says to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So whether it's in our marriages or family or in our churches, Paul gives you uh, two ways that we can be of one mind with each other. Now, one of these is explicit in the text. The other one is implied. Uh, But you must be humble and you must also be sacrificial. So first, you must be uh, humble. Let's talk about humility for a moment. Paul says to do not to do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant. So what does it mean uh, to be humility? or to be humble. What is humility? Um, I like C.S. Lewis's definition of the word, saying that humility is not thinking less of yourself. Rather, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Rather, it is thinking of yourself less. So so humility is not an act of of self-deprecation, where you're calling yourself weak. Rather, it's simply not focusing on yourself at all. Humility is taking the spotlight off of you and shining it on others rather than yourself. Um, I like thinking of it in terms of a solar system. When you let pride run rampant in your life, your world becomes a solar system with you at the center. You're the focus of everything, and everyone else is just meant to orbit around your aspirations and your ambitions. But you'll quickly come to understand the problem with that the first time you come across someone else who is just as prideful. Because suddenly you'll see that everybody is competing to be the center of attention. Humility, on the other hand, is coming to the same realization that the astronomer Copernicus did, that the earth revolves around the sun, not the other way around. You have to realize that you and everyone else's lives around you 
they, they don't revolve around you, but rather everyone's life should revolve around the sun, the S-O-N kind of sun. If you want to be a people who are of one mind and one love and of one accord, uh, we have to pursue humility. We have to understand that the world was not meant to be self-centered, but rather was meant to be Christ-centered. So you must be humble, uh, but secondly, you also must be sacrificial if you want to achieve this kind of unity that Paul speaks of. That word's technically not in the verse, but that's what Paul's getting at when he says to count others as more significant. Because at its heart, that's what being sacrificial is. Um, It's simply placing the needs of others above your own which almost always means that you're going to have to give up something in the process. Um, And I know this passage, uh, in it, Paul is is speaking uh, primarily about the church and being sacrificial uh, in the church. Uh, But I just want to give you an example of how this can play out in our marriages. Because if we can understand uh, what it looks like in the context of marriage— I think you can take that example and you can apply it to other relationships that you have in life. Um, So I I know a lot of people um, who like to argue uh, that marriages are meant to be a 50-50 kind of partnership, uh, where the workload in the relationship is intended to be shared equally. I'll get my half of the stuff done, my wife will do her half, everything will get done, uh, and everything will be fine. But if anybody in here has been married for any length of time, you know that's not actually how marriages work in practice. Rarely will you find both spouses committing equally to the marriage at the same time. Everyone will experience their own seasons of struggle where it feels like they just don't have much to contribute. So this idea of this 50-50 partnership is just, it's not going to work out. Um, I've also heard it argued that marriages should should really be 100-100, where you don't really worry as much about divvying up the responsibilities in equal portions, uh, but instead uh, you just give it all you got. You pour everything into your marriage and you expect your spouse to do the same. But but again, in practice, that seldom works out. And that view of marriage, it's it's just going to lead to bitterness when you feel like you're the one that is contributing far more to the relationship than your spouse. Which is why I had a a former pastor of mine say that the best way to view marriage is is not one that's a 50-50 kind of partnership or one that's 100-100. Rather, we should see the relationship as 100-0, meaning that you're committed to give everything uh, you know, it, you've got into, into this marriage. You're, you're committed to pour everything you have, even when your spouse seems to, to be giving nothing in return. Because that's what sacrifice looks like. If you see the relationship as 50-50, where you contribute half and then they contribute half, 
Uh, that's really not as much of a marriage as it is just a, a business partnership. I mean, businessmen do that all the time. They write up legal contracts with all kinds of obligations that both parties are intended to abide by. And, and then when they don't fill, fulfill their end of the contract, those contracts can simply be torn up and that partnership can be dissolved. But marriage is not intended to be a business transaction. It's a sacrificial relationship. And part of what it means to be sacrificial is putting someone else's needs above your own, even without expecting anything in return. If you're just looking uh, to see what you can get out of it, well, you're already starting that relationship off on the wrong foot. You have to be willing to give it your all, even when you feel like your spouse isn't going to do the same. So the foundation of every marriage should be a willingness to sacrifice. Um, And I understand that most other uh, relationships in your life uh, won't come with that same kind of commitment uh, that says, till death do us part, but a willingness to sacrifice should still be the foundation of every other relationship in your life and in the life of this church. We should all be willing to put the needs of others above our own, even when we don't feel like they would do the same in return. So if you're willing to be humble uh, and you're willing to sacrifice those two things, according to Paul, uh, will go a long ways at achieving uh, unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. But lastly this morning, I want us now to see an example of this playing out. We're, we're going to look at the rest of the verses in this passage to see that, where Paul shows us a model for this kind of unity. We, we've seen the marks of it and the means that we have of achieving it, But now let's see an example or a model of it playing out. Starting there in verse 5, Paul writes, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So, So Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God, And by that, he means that Jesus was God in all of his majestic beauty and and splendor. Ever since eternity past, Jesus uh, has been seated on his heavenly throne, literally radiating the glory of God. He was such a a sight to behold. Uh, you You couldn't possibly comprehend his beauty and his majesty, even if, if you tried to. But, but then Paul says that Jesus, this majestic, splendid creator of everything, says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Which isn't to say that Jesus wasn't equal to God. He was God, so clearly he was equal to his Father in every way. Both are all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving. They all share in the same attributes that make them divine. Yet Jesus didn't count equality as a thing to be grasped, meaning he didn't feel like it was something that he needed to cling on to or or hold to. Rather, Paul says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
Jesus willingly chose to take that breathtaking form of God and trade it in for the likeness of a mere man. He emptied himself, meaning that he gave up all of his heavenly comforts. He set aside all of the privileges that he enjoyed uh, by being God. He gave up his authority. He gave up his status all so that he could become a servant who obediently sought to do the will of his father. Then we get to verse 8, where we're told that being found in human form, Jesus then humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I said earlier that we want to achieve any kind of unity amongst ourselves as Christians. We need both a willingness to be humble and a willingness to sacrifice. Well, in this verse, you see Jesus perfectly modeling both. Jesus wasn't just a humble kind of guy. He was the essence of humility itself. I appreciate another pastor, Andrew Murray, who who said it this way. He said that Christ is the humility of God embodied in human nature. Christ is the humility of God embodied in human nature. So so if you want to know what true humility looks like, all you've got to do is look to Jesus Uh, In in particular, I think about the night that Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. Because just days before that incident, his disciples, those same disciples that he washed the the feet of, uh, they had been arguing and bickering with one another over who was the greatest. And that caused Jesus to tell them, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And then he said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, fast forward from that conversation to the night where Jesus was betrayed, knowing that he was about to be arrested and put on trial and that he was about to die an excruciating death. What what does Jesus do? The God of the universe decides to wash the dirty, nasty feet of 12 men. The creator of all stoops down to serve his creation, including Judas. Jesus even washed the feet of Judas, knowing full well that he was about to betray him and sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. But, but, but if Judas was going to betray Jesus, Jesus at least wanted him to do so with clean feet. <laughs> Talk about humility and servanthood. If the God who knitted Judas together in his mother's womb was willing to wash his feet right before being betrayed by him, well, surely we can humble ourselves and serve those around us, even the ones that we don't really want to. And even when it, when it seems that we don't always get along with them, and even when we think that they wouldn't do the same in return. But, but Jesus, he, 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 even though he is our example and our model for humility, he's also 
our model for living a life that is sacrificial. That's why Paul says at the end of verse 8 that Jesus was obedient to his Father's will even to the point of death, even death on a cross. We see here that Jesus didn't just sacrifice some of his time or, or money um, when, when we were in a time of need. Uh, he, he wasn't you know, like the guy who, who gives you a little bit of change or some cash when you step up to the register and, and realize that, that you're a couple bucks short. No, Jesus sacrificed his own life. And I've read uh, from several historians recently have all noted uh, that crosses and death by crucifixion, that was not even something that was discussed in polite company in the Roman world. Even just speaking about a cross was seen as a form of profanity, which is why that even after Christ's resurrection, it took several generations before Christians came to adopt the cross as the central logo of our faith. Because it was still difficult for them to associate with something that for so long had been obscene. That's the kind of shame that Jesus was willing to endure for your on your behalf, he died a degrading, humiliating death on a torture device that civilized Romans would have been embarrassed to even talk about. But it's precisely that sacrifice that served to unify us all in one spirit. Jesus' death and his resurrection made it possible for us to become one again with Christ. And because of that, it means that we can now be one with one another as well. It's that union that we can have with Jesus by submitting our lives to him that can allow us to have unity with each other. And so it's because of his sacrifice that as Christians, uh, we, we should be willing to make sacrifices of our own so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, as Paul says in verse 10. Because Jesus gave up his very life, that should be more than enough reason for us to give up our petty preferences in the life of the church. Because we want to see those from every tongue, as Paul says in verse 11. We want to see those of every tongue confess Jesus as Lord so because Jesus sacrificed it all to see our sins washed away, that should cause us to be willing to sacrifice it all, to see others come to that saving faith as well. So may we never be a church that finds itself on some list of ridiculous church fights. May we never become a church that is so focused on our disagreements and differences that we forget about those unbreakable bonds that we share as brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, just as Paul urged the Philippians, may we always seek to be a church that is of one mind and one love and of one accord. May we always model our humility and our willingness to sacrifice for one another. May we model that on the sacrifice made by Jesus at the cross, the one who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that 
he may now be highly exalted and so that God the Father can bestow upon him the name that is above every name. May may that uh, be the kind of humility and, and sacrifice that we are willing to pursue because of how we have seen it modeled in the life of Christ. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you uh, for the the truths that you have conveyed to us through this passage this morning. Um, I pray that those who are gathered in this room that, you know, we we have heard these truths. Um, I pray that we have heard them uh, with open ears. Uh, I pray that we would just continue to think about these truths as well, even long after we have walked out the door this morning. Uh, But also, Father, I pray that just like Paul, we too might find a joy that has been made complete. First and foremost, may we find our joy in Jesus and his gospel, but may that joy be further completed by the harmony and the unity that we can have for one another in this church. May our unity be so otherworldly and so supernatural that it just, it can do nothing but point others to Jesus. May others just look at us as Christians here in this church and simply say, There can be no other explanation for why so many people of of so many different backgrounds have all come together in the same place and have such a, a love for one another. May they not be able to explain the love and the unity that we have apart from explaining it through God. I just ask all of this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.